Well, hey guys, what's up? Pastor Matt here. Thanks for checking in again to the YouTube channel. So we're talking about hell today. That's right. You clicked you clicked on a video about hell. You sure did. Um, hope you're ready for this. Um, well, let's get into it, shall we? I happen to be preaching on hell this coming Lord's Day, and so I figured I'd go ahead and uh, make a video on this topic, and we'll put it into my Reformed View series. I always like to joke um, when I'm preaching on hell that I'd rather be preaching on tithing. And whenever I'm preaching on tithing, I'd rather be preaching on hell because there's something about both of these topics that, um, <laughs> you know, as the preacher, um, you're always thinking, what are they thinking? And uh, as far as the guest coming in for the first time to the church, you know, my greatest fear is that they're going to assume that whatever sermon they hear the very first time is typical of everything that they are going to hear in this church if they were ever to attend or to come back. And uh, the reality is, of course, we preach expository sermons through books of the Bible. And so the the course, the matter, the content, the topics go with the scriptures themselves. And so if somebody walks in and I'm preaching on hell, they're going to just assume that that's all we do. And if we preach on tithing that day, uh, they assume that it's just one of those give me the money type churches. So I'm always a little bit hesitant. Uh, and often I'll just kind of lead with that. Hey, man, I'm preaching on health today. Wish I was preaching on tithing instead or vice versa. But uh, but either way, we're finishing up the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 66. And there are certainly some themes and motifs related to eternal punishment in that text. So we're not going to shy away from it. That's not what we do. Uh, we preach through the word of God. Now, I have to admit that I do kind of relate with uh, one of my one of my mentors theologically and one of my former professors, John Frame, I was reading his systematic theology on this topic just last night, and Frame has a pretty good quote, and he says this, if I were free to invent my own religion, I can assure you that eternal punishment would not be part of it, but I must talk now about it because I'm not free to invent my own religion. I must teach only what the Bible teaches, and the Bible certainly has a lot to say about eternal punishment. Of course, he's exactly right. In Christianity, and especially in Reformed Christianity, we are not led by our uh, by our feelings. We're not led by our emotions. We're not led by our preferences or our desires. In Reformed theolo theology, uh, Presbyterian churches that take the Bible seriously, and many other churches besides Baptist, otherwise uh, confessional, Lutheran churches, etc. Look, we deal with what the Bible teaches, and it's we're not inventing our own religion, but we are hoping to be faithful expositors, passing down the faith once and for all delivered unto the saints. And so when we come to texts related to eternal punishment, we deal with those texts related to eternal punishment. And that's what I'm going to do on Sunday, and I'll probably post the, the sermon on this channel, of course. Anyways, welcome to this channel. My name is Matthew Everhart. I'm the pastor of Gospel Fellowship Presbyterian Church. We're a reformed Bible-believing church just north of Pittsburgh. If you're looking for a church like that, hey, you found one. We're glad you're here. Come visit us in real life at some point. We have worship services at 8.30, 11, and 4 o'clock in the afternoon. It's the same service, but we do it a couple of different times. For the sake of... Uh, people's schedules and also just spreading people out, you know how that works in the post-COVID era. Uh, but anyways, I want to invite you to our church. We're a wonderful church, loving people here just north of Pittsburgh. We'd love to have you. And um, listen, if you are a regular listener here, perhaps from out of town, try to make it our way at least once because we're having a theology conference coming up here at Gospel Fellowship. Uh, the Pursuit of Christ conference is on November 12th and 13th, and we have an incredible lineup for that conference. Uh, yours truly, I'll be talking about Jonathan Edwards, uh, my colleague and co 
or uh, associate pastor here, David O'Leary, will be teaching, Jared Nelson from our presbytery, and then we're having a bunch of guests from RPTS, the Reformed Theological Presbyterian Seminary in Pittsburgh. If I could redo my seminary education, I would probably go to RPTS. Those guys are crushing it down there in Pittsburgh. We'll have uh, the president of the seminary, Dr. Barry York, will be teaching, as well as Dr. David Whitla, the history professor. Um, uh, I'm, Keith Evans will be here. Uh, Jeff Stuyvesant will be here. It's going to be a fantastic, fantastic conference. And I've posted the poster for this on the community page of my YouTube channel, as well as posting it on Twitter and Facebook as well. So really want to invite you. It's a free conference. You know me if you're a regular on this channel. I try to give away everything for free as much as possible. All kinds of stuff on my About page. Uh, go to my YouTube channel, click on the About page. There's all kinds of stuff. I give away even some of my books for free if I'm able to. Can't give them all away. A uh, quick update on the Edwards book. It's supposed, supposedly coming out in October or November, of course, with all the cargo delays, the shipping, uh, you know, the crazy stuff happening in the ports. The shelves are empty uh, these days. It's like the new Cuba, I guess. But anyways, Hendrickson is having trouble getting paper, believe it or not, to to print the book, which was supposed to be out. I do believe it's available on Amazon Kindle if you're into that, but I digress. Let's go ahead and get into our topic today. This is another one of my Reformed View series, and for those of you who are interested in Reformed theology, uh, confessional, conservative, Bible, Christ-exalting Reformed theology, this series is for you, and what I'm doing is I'm going through a number of some of the controversial topics related to Reformed theology. Some of our stuff on baptism, on the Lord's Supper, on the regulative principle of worship, why we worship the way we do. I've done on one on uh, I've done one on original sin, on limited atonements, on images of Christ, on the mode of baptism, even the freedom of the will. So you might want to just check out this whole playlist. The Reformed View series is there for your viewing edification. So why do we believe in hell? Let's get into the topic directly here. Why do we believe in hell? Well. Um, let me say something about worldview, first of all. There are really four different worldviews, and I have mentioned this on other occasions. You have, um, we'll call this box number one, your consistent supernaturalists. And that's me. I'm a consistent supernaturalist. We are those who believe in God. We believe in creation. We believe in miracles. We believe in angels and demons. We believe in the power of prayer. We believe in the resurrection of the dead. We believe in everlasting life, in heaven and hell. And why do we believe supernaturally consistent things? Well, because the Bible is a supernaturally consistent book. And so if you're in box one with me, you accept all the things that the Bible teaches are real. So if the Bible says that prayer works, then prayer works. If, Bible, if the Bible says that there's angels and demons, there's angels and demons. And so we in box one, we believe that we live in a supernatural world with an absolute sovereign God reigning over it. Now over here, we'll call this box two. Uh, there is an entirely opposing worldview construct. We'll call that materialism, secularism, or atheism. Uh, they believe that there's only matter, that there is no God, that all of the laws that hold this universe together are merely the laws of nature, that we are essentially the byproduct of evolution and chance, uh, there really is no rhyme or reason or purpose to the universe, and when you die, that's it. The body ceases, um, whatever becomes of the soul, if there even is such a soul in the materialistic box, it extinguishes. Now, uh, those are the two main worldviews, but then you have sort of like derivations of both. We'll have, on one hand, we'll call this box three, this would be inconsistent supernaturalism. 
And those would be people who say that they believe in God. They believe that God created the world. But when you start talking about the particularities of a consistent supernaturalism in box one, that's where they get a little shy and they back off. They want to be supernaturalists, but they're not consistently so. And so they will deny things like the possibility of miracles. They'll, they'll deny um, the inspiration and infallibility of divine revelation in the scripture. Uh, they'll deny things like the resurrection of the body and angels and demons. And so you essentially have in this third box inconsistent supernaturalism, like the Sadducees, for instance, would be your classical case in point in the New Testament. And then finally, of course, over here in box four, there's what we might call an inconsistent supernaturalism, or I'm sorry, an inconsistent materialism, correct myself. Those would be people who say that there is no God, that there is no creation. They should be thoroughly secular, atheistic materialists, and yet what's weird about them is they let strange things creep into their ideology. They'll start talking about luck, or they'll start, start talking about astrology, or they'll start talking about superstition, or ghosts in the graveyard, whatever, whatever you have. And so those are the four main views. Now, if you want to be a consistent supernaturalist with me in box one, then what that means is that we're going to have to receive and to believe everything that the Bible says about the supernatural world, uh, because it's true. And so if somebody asks me why I believe in hell, I'll give you two reasons right now. Number one, because the Bible teaches it, and number two, because Jesus Christ preaches it. So that's my apologia and my defense for holding to the traditional view of hell, that is eternal conscious punishment, which is the consistent reformed traditional view and the one I'll be defending in this video. So I believe in hell, I preach hell, I teach hell. Do I enjoy it? No, I don't. Um, but I teach it and preach it because it's real, because the Bible teaches it, and especially because Christ himself, the Lord, he does preach these things, and perhaps even more than any other person in the Old and New Testaments. Well, let's get into some of the biblical data about hell. Uh, one of the passages that I'll be preaching from this coming Lord's Day, if you listen to my sermon, I'll probably post it on Monday, uh, is the very last paragraph of the book of Isaiah, where the prophet says this, And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me, for their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. And so interestingly, we've been working through the entire book of Isaiah, and the very last paragraph in the book is a warning about hell. In fact, Isaiah gives two of the images that are, might we say, the stock and trade images of the doctrine of hell. That would be an eternal fire burning and an eternal worm gnawing. And so what Isaiah does is he ends his book um, with, a, with a, a view of what we might think of as like a burning graveyard. And just previous on the context, you have uh, missionaries going out into all of the world and they're to gather the elect, they're to preach the gospel, and they're to bring the hope of the glory of God through Christ to the ends of the earth. But as Isaiah is consistently preaching all along, God will preserve an elect remnant for himself that will be saved by grace through faith. But uh, we also know that many will reject and disobey the message of the gospel. And so Isaiah actually ends with a very stark warning using these two images of the eternal fire and the, and the burning worm. Now, it's not surprising then when Christ in the gospels takes up these very same Isaianic images and he preaches this then in Mark chapter 9. So let's quote from Mark 9, 42 to 48. Jesus says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. 
and if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands and to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. So there Jesus is using this image from Isaiah. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter lame, life lame, than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And there we see direct drawing from this imagery in the closing portion of the book of Isaiah. So it's interesting. Here's Jesus Christ, who is undoubtedly the most loving person who has ever lived, right? I mean, Christ, the one who heals the lepers. He's the one who shows grace to the prostitutes. He is the one who heals demoniacs and sends the demons fleeing from his grace and love. Uh, he sends them to the abyss in condemnation. Jesus, the most loving person, the one who uh, takes widows by the hands and cares for the poor and feeds the hungry and tends to the sick. And yet it's this Jesus who uh, takes these images from Isaiah's preaching. And what does he do? Does he dull them? Does he soften these images? No. In fact, he intensifies them and he adds to them. He adds images of a millstone being tied around one's neck and thrown into the sea. Jesus tells us that it'd be better for us to grab a sharp stick and gouge out the eyes than it would be to go to hell and to burn there forever. Jesus talks about it'd be better to cut off your hand than to, than, to, um, than to go to the place where the fire never quenches and the worm never stop, stops gnawing on the bodies in the burning graveyard of the dead. And so Jesus um, takes uh, these images and he actually intensifies their horribleness. He never remits on this, but instead uh, Jesus uses this to provoke us to, to repentance and to turn to him by faith in his grace. Now, again, we see language like this in Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians. Paul talks about the same kinds of imagery here. Uh, 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 to 9 says, And to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Now look at this in verse 9. This is salient language here. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Now some people have liked to take this passage and again use this to kind of soften our idea of what hell is and simply speak of it as separation from God. Uh, and while the passage certainly says that, that we are separated at least in one sense, from the mercies and the clemency and the glory of the presence of God. Yet in another sense, it's his holy, a terrible ferocity that is what makes hell hell. Um, <clears throat> not only that, but Paul doesn't seem to remit or to back off from this imagery of the eternality of hell and the use of imagery of the flaming fire in verse 8, inflicting vengeance. So Paul do doesn't soften it either. In fact, he preaches it um, to the people that they would be warned to flee from the coming wrath of God. Now, at this point, I just have to break in and tell you a bit of a personal story. For those of you who know my testimony, uh, preaching hell is what converted me to Christ. And so uh, it's a little bit counterintuitive. You might think that by preaching hell, you're driving people away. You're preaching something that you know, is obviously an unpalatable doctrine. And, and who among us can, can truly throw up your hand and say, I love teaching hell. I love preaching about hell. Well, it's not that. 
But um, it's the preaching of the apostolic faithful gospel that does bring in the harvest of souls. And I'll, I'll tell you on a, a first-hand basis here that it was a hellfire and brimstone sermon that drew me to Christ. I was in eighth grade. I had been raised in a traditional Lutheran church. I'd heard the liturgy. I'd uh, sang the hymns. We certainly um, stated the confessional language and the creeds a number of times, and yet nobody threatened me with the eternal vengeance of God's furious wrath until I went to a different church. And the pastor, I've told this story before, but he handed us out note cards in youth group, and he said, write down the names of people that don't know Jesus, and I didn't know Jesus, and then we passed him in, and he took the cards, and he threw them into the fireplace, and I was utterly terrified by that. And it was that imagery of the eternal flaming fire that drew me to Christ. And I knew that I needed a Savior. I knew that my sins would overwhelm me. I knew that I needed the mercies and grace of a loving God in Christ. And so rather than driving me away from the gospel, the doctrine of hell actually drew me to the mercies and the clemency of God. And not only that, and I'm sure stories like this could multiply, but uh, we even see this working its way out historically when we talk about revivalism. I don't think I need to remind you, for those of you who uh, watch this channel because of my love for Jonathan Edwards, that it was his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, that was the very central moment, that moment of great gravitas and the Great Awakening, 1741, where Edwards preaches at the Enfield Church. <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> excuse me on um, some of these great images of hellfire and destruction. He's warning a people who have been raised in the faith. They know much of Christianity, probably knew their Bibles better than, than many of us certainly do. And yet it's when Edwards preaches this furious message of um, the surety of the coming judgment of God that people begin to fall out of the pews. And we're talking about dignified, noble people. We're not talking about... Uh, the Shakers, we're not talking about some sort of proto-Pentecostal or charismatic uh, you know, people out there. We're talking about the Puritans, and these people did not typically fall out of their pews and shake on the ground. But as Edwards preached this furious, terrifying, absolutely astonishing sermon, the Lord used it to great effect. Now, I do want to challenge you here. If you think that's all the Puritans ever preached, of course that's not true. And I always tell people whenever I mention sinners in the hands of an angry God that they should also read his sermon, Heaven is a World of Love, because it's a wonderful balance uh, to hell's terrors uh, by also reminding you that Edwards and others could preach the joys of heaven just as gloriously as they could with their striking language. So my point here is that the Lord actually uses this. I mean, part of the reason it's the gospel is because it's the gospel, right? The gospel is the good news that there is a deliverance from hell. And so I would just appeal to you to preach the fullness of the gospel. What would be the point of saying that God has provided a Savior if, in fact, there is no need of a Savior? A Savior from what? Well, the gospel's answer to that question is a Savior from hell. And so the good news is, in fact, very good because God has provided us a way out. One way out, only one way out, but one sure, true, and reliable way out, and that is by grace through faith in his Son. So yes, we preach hell. Uh, no, we're not ashamed and afraid to do so because it is part of the gospel. Now, um, if you want to do some New Testament and Old Testament studies on this topic, I would encourage you, and this is probably further than I intended to go in this particular video, uh, to look up some of the words, both 
in the Hebrew and in the Greek and get into some of the nuance of this. First of all, the Hebrew often speaks of the place called Sheol. Now, um, Sheol is a bit of a mysterious and gray concept in the Old Testament because the Old Testament doesn't speak with the final light of revelation that the New Testament has. And so, in some ways, uh, what the Old Testament says about eternal life and eternal condemnation is darkened to the eye. And so Sheol is, is sort of this concept of the grave or death or even burial. Now, in some passages in, in the Old Testament, it seems like Sheol seems to be a common abode for both the righteous and the unrighteous. And so there's a sense in which Sheol simply connotes this idea of deadness. And certainly that is the common experience, is that we take people to the graveyard and we bury them in the ground. Um, so there, there's that. Um, Hades then would seem to be the Greek interpretation of Sheol. So very often when the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, what they'll do is they'll they'll sort of uh, they'll sort of translate Sheol as Hades, which is a actually a Greek concept. But when we get to the concept of Gehenna, which is the word that's most commonly translated as hell. Um, Gehenna, as far as I understand it, was a literal burning dump, garbage dump outside the city of Jerusalem. In those days, of course, there was no sanitation trucks. Now, you and I, we take our garbage under our desks and from our kitchens, and we bring it out to bags. We throw it in the cans or the dumpster. A truck comes along, and it goes who knows where, probably to some great dump somewhere in New Jersey. Or California, but we don't know where our where our garbage goes. But in the ancient world, um, all of your refuse, all of your putrid trash, it had to go somewhere because you couldn't just leave it outside of your house. It would get rats and nasty bugs and gross stuff, you know, <laughs> accumulating. And so what they do? They took it to the uh, the city dump and they constantly burned the trash. And so. Apparently, as far as I understand it, there was a certain burning dump yard called Gehenna, and that's where some of the imagery of hell comes from. Uh, there's another term, Tartarus, that's used, I think, only once in the New Testament, and you can study that in your own time. My point in simply bringing up these terms is that if you look at the usage of Gehenna, that burning dump yard of, of hell, um, it of the 12 times that it's mentioned in the New Testament, 11 of those usages are on the lips of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And again, I submit to you, I bring this to you for your consideration, that Jesus is the most loving person who's ever lived. Jesus is the person who died for you to spare you of going to that eternal burning dump of hell, that literal eternal conscious punishment of the burning fires of hell. He went through hell for you on the cross, we might say, because on the cross, Jesus experienced the full weight, the full fury of God's wrath as he dies for us uh, in our place. And so if Jesus is the one who speaks Gehenna 11 of the 12 times it's in the New Testament, then surely we ought to follow our Savior's example in boldly, likewise, preaching on hell too, rather than backing off it or skipping those passages by the way, this is an argument for expository preaching, isn't it? Because if we're constantly doing sermon series, topical series on, you know, be a good father or be a good worker or 12 steps to enhance your, your, your marriage. I mean, look, there's a place for that kind of topical teaching, I think, at times. But it certainly wouldn't make it the main diet of my expository preaching because 
if we're faithful to preaching through books of the Bible, then we're going to get the balance right because that's the balance that God has given us in his word itself. That's why we preach and teach through books of the Bible. Now, we can make arguments about how quickly we should move through books of the Bible, but nevertheless, our primary preaching and teaching should cover the whole gamut of what scriptural revelation tells us. That's why, by the way, Paul says in his speech to the Ephesian elders that he did not shrink back from preaching the full counsel of God's word. And that word shrink back literally means um, to for a dog to put its tail between its legs or for a ship mast to be uh, un or unfurled? No, furled, I suppose, retracted inwards. Paul says, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to give you the full weight of the divine and authoritative revelation of God. And that means, yes, we do preach hell. So we have some imagery that we can that we can discover as we're looking through the scriptural teaching on hell. And again, I already gave you a number of passages that you can look up, but there's others. We see these commonalities, uh, darkness, fire, the gnashing of teeth, pain, crying out, and regret. Now, the second I call that imagery, somebody may object that this is merely symbolic. And um, it may be true, okay? There's no doubt that Isaiah uses imagery throughout. It's a largely poetic book, okay? And uh, there's also a sense in which even when Jesus is preaching on hell, he's using stark, raving terms to shock the conscience into repentance, right? Imagery. Do we want to call it symbolic? I want to be careful there because I certainly don't want to play games with the doctrine of hell. Now, one person might ask how it's possible that you can have literal images of darkness and fire when those two things seem to be contradictory. Fire is not usually dark um, and, and uh, darkness does not usually persist when fire is present. Um, but I want to hold as close as possible as I can to the to the literal power and force of those ideas because don't let me be the one to tell you that hell is any less than the imagery that scripture uses to convey it and so I don't want to back off of terms like fire or uh, gnawing worms or pain or regret certainly gnashing of teeth is is one of the images as well uh, because I, I think what we can do is we, we can try our best to, to soften the language of of hell, and I really don't think we should do that. Um, even C.S. Lewis, at times, when when he starts talking about we we choose hell because we prefer it uh, to to the glory of God, you know, that there's a sense in which that's true. But if you knew what hell was, you would not choose it. It's absolutely the most unconscionable regret and terror, even pain, that somebody could possibly imagine. So I, I don't like to do that. Again, let me quote John Frame here. He says, no one should try by some exegetical or theological trick to mitigate the harshness of this doctrine. All right, so I agree with him here. Whether or not we want to attribute darkness and fire to symbolism, I just say, yo, be careful with that because it sounds like you may be trying to soften the edges on, on a very sharp rasp. Um, God's word is a serrated edge, and far be it from me or from you to try to dull that edge by making it more palatable. All right, it's just not. Now let me get into some um, heresies related to the doctrine of hell. Any of the following I would consider to be 
a, an uncouth derivation from the orthodox traditional Christian historical teaching on hell. And so, first of all, we might mention purgatory. Uh, this is a Roman Catholic doctrine, of course, that has absolutely no foundation whatsoever in the Old and New Testaments. Uh, you may have to appeal to the Apocrypha, but certainly to papal authority to even contrive by theological origami that there is some sort of doctrine of purgatory. Now, what is purgatory? Purgatory is some kind of in-between place. It's more suffering um, than heaven, certainly, but less suffering than hell. And according to Roman Catholic theology, it's a place of purgation, as the name suggests, a place where one's sins might be purified over time, and so that one might possibly, perhaps over eons or even thousands of years, um, have their sin eliminated so that they might be more qualified for heaven. But of course, there's nothing like that in the scriptures. The scriptures only speak of two eternal destinations, heaven and hell. And so uh, the, the whole idea of purgatory is only so much creative imagination of man. Actually, it's interesting. I was reading Plato a while back. Now, I'm not a Platonist, obviously. Greek philosophy is challenging to the intellect, but it's certainly not uh, Christian doctrine, of course. Duh, I'm not claiming that it is. Scripture says we shouldn't be deceived by uh, philosophy and other such things. But it's interesting that in Plato's understanding of the eternal world, he has a doctrine of some kind of a purgatory, a third box or a third container in which people seem to be prepared finally for for heaven. And I'm almost wondering, I'd have to do the research on this, if the Roman Catholic developments of their doctrine of purgatory isn't actually uh, a syncretism with this pagan Greek thought, and maybe one of you knows more about that. I just read that in Plato, and I was like, huh, I wonder if that's where the Roman Catholics sort of modified their doctrine of purgatory from actually Plat Platonic um, Greek philosophy, obviously not any biblical data for sure. Second uh, heresy is the second chances after death. Uh, some people hold that, um, and again, they're trying to soften the doctrine of hell, that there's some sense in which after you die, even if you're a persistent, hardened unbeliever, that God is going to give you yet another chance to receive the gospel and repent. But again, there's absolutely no biblical evidence that that is true. And I think to even assert that that might be possible, you could be putting souls in jeopardy by giving them a comfort that the scripture themselves uh, does not provide for us. Third heresy is annihilationism or a denial of hell altogether. This is what the Jehovah's Witnesses have done. Jehovah's Witnesses have said that, look, hell is just too difficult to talk about. We can't go there. Um, one Jehovah's Witness told me that a happy God could not send people to hell, despite every evidence in the New Testament. Of course, Jehovah's Witnesses claim that they follow biblical teaching more consistently than Christians, but here you get into a discussion with them and they just won't deal with it. They'll just say that doesn't comport with their understandings of God's nature, and so they might as well literally rip these passages out of the Bible. Um, annihilation is something similar to that. It's the idea that um, though there may be a hell temporarily, yet God uses that hell to finally extinguish the very existence or the life or the consciousness of the soul at some point after death. And again, while the Bible does use terms like destruction, uh, we saw that in the Second Thessalonians quotation, 
yet it doesn't seem to step back at all from the idea that there is this eternal conscious regret of having rejected the glory of God in Christ Jesus. And so I don't want to use annihilation either to uh, to help mitigate what would seem to be the harshness or the ferocity of, of the doctrine of hell. And finally, of course, uh, many have held out for universalism. Um, as soon as we start talking about everybody being saved, we're far afield from Christian teaching. Origen was one who taught a form of universalism. If I'm not mistaken, I believe I heard someplace that Origen thought that even the devil himself might finally be restored and redeemed in some way. But of course, there's no hint of that whatsoever in the biblical data. <clears throat> well, what is the confessional and creedal teaching? Let's go to the Westminster Confession of Faith. I've got here my, uh, my copy of the Westminster Confession and the Catechisms. This is from chapter 33, paragraph 2. It says, The end of God's appointing this day is for the manifestation of the glory of his mercy in the eternal salvation of the elect and of his justice in the damnation of the reprobate who are wicked and disobedient. For then shall the righteous go into everlasting life and receive the fullness of joy and refreshing, which shall come from the presence of the Lord. But the wicked, it says, who know not God and obey not the gospel of Jesus Christ, shall be cast into eternal torments and be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. And so we see there that the confession is trying to uh, to incorporate much of the language of scripture itself as it very commonly does to define our our doctrines okay so eternal torments um, is what it is what it teaches so let's get into a couple of objections here about the doctrine of hell and then we'll finish up here first objection is simply this isn't this um, just an ancient doctrine that that man can leave behind um, some might object look we're modern people. We live in the age of the telescope and the microscope and uh, the spacecraft and the International Space Station. We're in the age of, of vaccinations and incredible technology and deep fakes. And aren't, aren't we basically, like, aren't we just too smart for this? Um, hasn't mankind progressed beyond these sorts of ancient, dark, foreboding doctrines of the dark ages in the medieval realm and uh, my answer to that is well no um, no because no matter how much modern technology we accumulate no matter how much collaborative intelligence human beings are able to gather for themselves that doesn't alleviate the fact that you have a soul and I have a soul and one day our body is going to die and then we will face eternity. And your telescope and your microscope and your deep fake technology will do nothing for you on that day. When you are judged and I am judged before the great and holy and almighty God and we prepare in that moment to go into our eternal destiny, your collective human gathered not knowledge and data will not avail for you. Um, there is no sense in which we're too modern to evade the question of our, of our eternal fate. And so you are still going to die and you are still going to face God. And no matter how well society advances in this time or in the, the times to come, though they be very many, 
Yet the question of what happens to man's soul after death is not evaded. All right. Second, second um, objection here. Isn't preaching hell some form of psychological abuse? Um, aren't we holding people in an unreasonable state of psychological apprehension? And isn't, isn't that cruel and unreasonable to do so? Answer, well, it would be if it weren't true. But the reason that we say these, these things is because we preach what God has revealed to us in the Holy Scriptures. In the Bible, we have the infallible, inerrant, and inspired Word of God, the final and full revelation, the inscripturated Word of God. And it's on the basis of this divine revelation that we stand upon these truths. And not only that, but the God-man himself, Jesus Christ, confirmed this doctrine to us. And he is the one who not only came down from heaven to most fully reveal God as the second person of the Trinity, but he's also the one who was raised from the dead himself. And so if there's any person in uh, the history of the world who has authoritative knowledge on the state of man, the condition of man's soul, and the fate of man after death, it would be Jesus Christ. And yet again, as I mentioned, he is the one who most faithfully and consistently preaches the doctrine of hell throughout the Gospels. Third, Objection. Wouldn't it be more encouraging and wouldn't we have greater success in our evangel evangelization efforts if we were to lure people with the graces of God rather than to repel them and terrify them by the fears of hell? My answer to that? Well, once again, I think we have here just an argument for expository preaching. Because if we're preaching through books of the Bible, passage by passage and text by text, we're going to get that balance right. And so I don't need to ask myself questions like, how many sermons on heaven do I need to do for every one sermon on hell? Uh, I just preach what's there, and I deal with it as it comes in the text. Now, as it is, um, and maybe this will sound like a concession, that yes, the term heaven is used hundreds of times in the New Testament, and hell, or at least the term Gehenna, used only 12. There's 250 plus instances of the word heaven. And so if I'm doing expository preaching, then yeah, well, certainly I'm talking about heaven more than I am hell, but that doesn't get me off the hook of preaching hell when it comes up. And not only that, but going back to Paul's idea of preaching the full counsel of God, I'm not sure what it even means to preach the gospel if I'm not telling people consistently and faithfully what it is that we are being saved from with our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, last objection. Is it, are you taking some sort of like sadistic or masochistic delight in terrifying people by preaching hell? Answer, absolutely not. Like I said at the top of the message, I don't enjoy it. I don't enjoy preaching hell any more than a doctor enjoys coming into that consultation room and telling his patient that he has cancer. Does he enjoy that? You'd be really twisted to say yes. Um, I don't enjoy preaching on hell any more than a pilot enjoys getting on the intercom system and telling the people to prepare for a crash landing because the plane is going down. I don't enjoy preaching on hell any more than a weatherman who was frantically appealing to everybody within the sound of his voice that there's a hurricane spinning out in the Gulf and is going to strike where you are. I don't enjoy this any more than a general telling his soldiers that the enemy is in fact advancing even now. I don't enjoy that. But uh, that's not the question, is it? The question is, how do we remain faithful 
to the duty and the burden of being uh, um, those preachers like Ezekiel 33. Uh, the, the the warning on the watchtower, the, the, the sentry who guards the castle, his very job is to warn the people within the city that there is a furious fate approaching, and that's what we're doing when we preach on the doctrine of hell. All right, well, thank you so much for checking into this video. Uh, didn't mean to scare anybody, but it's real, man, and we have a real Savior, a really gracious Savior, Jesus Christ. Flee to him, cling to him by grace, through faith alone. Again, thank you so much. Don't forget Theology Conference coming up, the Pursuit of Christ Conference, November 12th and 13th here at Gospel Fellowship PCA. Totally free. Just come. We've got a seat for you. Don't worry about registration. We've got some cool gifts for people that do come. Uh, don't forget that on my YouTube channel, on the About page, there's plenty of freebies. You can get some new PDFs, including my uh, my Gospel Tract, The Gospel is Greater Than CRT. You can get that printed up for free, distribute it. It's a nice way to share the gospel with folks that are caught up in uh, secular worldviews. All right, well, thank you so much for checking in to this channel. As always, I do love you lots, and we'll talk to you later.